And let's pray as we come to our, our time in God's Word. Lord, we just thank you uh, for the written Word, because we know this. The written Word leads us to you, Jesus, the living Word. And our heart, Lord, is to meet with you, uh, to reflect on the resurrection account, Lord, and to rejoice in what we have in you, Christ Jesus. And so, Jesus, we pray your gospel would be clear this morning. We pray, God, that we would have uh, ears that are open to hear, that we would have eyes open to see, and that you would just bless this time in your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to get you to turn back to Matthew chapter 27, and we'll just go to verse 62 and read the end of chapter uh, 27 here. It says this, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Say with me, after three days. Come on, nice and loud. After three days, I will rise. Verse 64. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you can have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by stealing, sealing the, the stone and setting a guard. So it seems, you know, when we read the gospel accounts, that none of the disciples remembered the fact that Jesus had promised after three days he would rise. But his enemies remembered. remembered and... Uh, they called him a fraud, and they said this, that this last deception, this claim that he would rise from the dead will be worse than the first deception if it's allowed to happen. So they went to Pilate. They said, can we make the tomb secure? And so as we know, and as we've read, Pilate gave them the authority to have a, a guard of soldiers, probably 16 Roman soldiers. It may have been more than that. Uh, some suggest up to 50. Anyways, it was, <laughs> these were serious Soldiers, it wasn't you know given to anyone the assignment to serve Rome in Jerusalem because it was always a, a hotbed of trouble. And so these soldiers are placed there in front of the tomb. The tomb is sealed, as we read, which with the insignia of Rome, which meant this: the governor's insignia was placed in the wax seal. Uh, Rome was represented in that wax seal, and to break that seal without permission of the government, without permission of the governor was uh, the sentence of death. So this tomb is sealed. I mean, and I love this because it's so, you know, secure and at the same time ironic because the enemies of Jesus secured the evidence for the resurrection while they were trying to make sure Jesus didn't get out of there. I mean, they gave us the proof for the resurrection by setting those guards in place and sealing the tomb with the insignia of Rome, unwittingly providing complete evidence for the truth of the resurrection. They actually made it impossible. Like, when you think about it, they made it impossible to say Jesus is a fraud. They made it impossible to say the resurrection is a deception because of what they did. Their seal, their guards, became the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's like, you know, I love it. It's like, what are you going to do to stop Jesus? It's like trying to catch the wind, <laughs> you know, tame the tide, try and stop the sun from rising. It was up there this morning, that gospel rock, though we couldn't see it behind the clouds. Uh, 
You know, their scheming tactics turned into instruments to show the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ to all, even us, all these years later. I think the Father in heaven must have laughed. Oh, perfect. This is great. You know, when you think about the gospel account and the message of the gospel, the story of Jesus, sometimes you like wonder, well, in terms of like priorities, like where do we as, the, as a church in sharing the message of Christ, where do we put priority? Should we put priority on, I don't know, the nativity story, the birth of Jesus, born of a virgin, all the incredible drama? How about Good Friday? Should that be where all the emphasis is, is the cross, the, the main focus of our message, the loving sacrifice Jesus made for a world estranged from its maker because of its sin? Or is it what we celebrate today, the resurrection? Is this the pinnacle of the message of the gospel? And you kind of wonder that. I was wondering this the other day. I was having this conversation with somebody. They said, Friday is the greatest day. I said, no, I think Sunday is the greatest day. And we were just, you know, back and forth a little bit, having some fun with that. And it's, it's true that each part of the message of Jesus is vital to the importance of the gospel account. Uh, so where do we prioritize the resurrection? Well, I want to remind you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians because he gave us the prioritization when he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, or chapter 15, verse 3 to 8, he said this, For I delivered to you as of first importance. So when we're speaking of priorities, he says, this is of first importance. Number one, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Number two, that he was buried. Three, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And I would say the fourth thing, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. He also appeared to me. So here's what I love about Paul. Paul says, we don't separate these facts. So, you know, I thought, yeah, you know what? I was wrong arguing about Sunday. My friend was wrong arguing about Friday. We don't separate these facts and break them down in terms of priority, but we lump them all together as one unit, as Paul did, and we say these things are of first priority, of first importance, the battalion of facts. They are the, the message that we preach. It's like a, I don't know, I was thinking of a, fighter jets flying in a squadron. It's like they don't separate these things from one another. Four inseparable facts that are on your screen for you. Indivisible gospel facts. These are truths with which we do not negotiate as the people of God. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and as we celebrate today on the third day, he was raised and he appeared. And today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's Resurrection Sunday, church. He is risen. As Paul spoke those gospel facts, he said this about the resurrection. Check out chapter 15, verse 14 through 15, and then verse 17. He said this, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God, whom he did not raise, and if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still dead in your sins. But thankfully, Christ has been raised. And the word of God gives us much evidence to this. I mean, the Pharisees helped us out. 
Rome helped out the message of the gospel. The, the, the guards at the tomb helped out the message of the gospel. So let's read this again. Matthew chapter 28. We'll go through it verse by verse this morning. It says this, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So here's these women. We know this about them, that they were the first to the tomb. They had no idea what had transpired. And uh, in that tomb, they believed was the one upon whom they had attached all their hopes, the one whom they had loved, to whom they had given their lives, the one who had conquered their hearts. They thought that his body was lying in that tomb and they were not expecting anything else on that Sunday morning before dawn when they came to the tomb. And verse two says, and behold, there was a great earthquake. All throughout this, I'm gonna point this as we go through, Matthew constantly says, behold. It's like, every time he says this, it's like, you have to stop and think about this. This is incredible. This is mind-blowing stuff. It's not just, you know, just a, an historical account. It's something that you have to stop and consider. So he says, behold, there was a great earthquake. This is a, like symbolic of a change in the natural order of things. The ground shook. The rocks split. I, I think about the death of Jesus on the cross. The gospel accounts also tell us that at, at the death of Jesus, there was an earthquake. And it's like the earth shook in its mourning as the creator died on the cross. But it shook in a sense of pleasure when he was raised from the dead. You know, the earth shaking in scripture is an amazing picture. Of course, the earth shook when the law came down, Moses on Mount Sinai. The earth shook when the Lord appeared to Elijah in the still small voice of the Lord. And here we see, uh, both at the cross and the resurrection, there were great earthquakes. Now verse two goes on, it says this. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now that's quite a picture, right? It's like an angel of the Lord coming down from, from heaven, descending from heaven. Uh, he, as Matthew said, you got to think about this stuff. This is crazy. And he didn't come down to, uh, you know, roll the stone out, out of the way to let Jesus out. We know this. Jesus had already left the tomb. The angel came down to show the world the evidence that the grave was empty, that the tomb was empty. And he opened that tomb, rolled away the stone. Now, in front of that tomb was those guard of soldiers. Sealing that tomb was the governor's insignia, the seal of Rome. And I, you know, this angel with no consideration of Jewish religious leaders or the authority of Rome, the angel came down, rolled back the stone by the authority of God and sat on it. Now, I don't know what he was thinking because he wasn't allowed to do that. Like, he wasn't supposed to do that. But it, what are you going to do? You know, like, just let Jerusalem or Rome try to stop him. This is an angel of the Lord. He's not concerned about the displeasure of the Sanhedrin. He's not worried about the might of Caesar. Who is Caesar? Who are the Pharisees? What is the Sanhedrin? What is Jerusalem or Rome when it comes to the works of God? I love this because we have to consider this as Matthew says. Behold, behold, no power on earth could roll back that stone without the permission of Rome. But that stone was not rolled back by earthly power. It was rolled back by the power of of heaven. 
And no power on earth could roll it back into its place. Because as we read here, the angel sat down and, I don't know, maybe he had a coffee or something, but he sat down there and he ensured that nobody was going to roll that stone back in place. You know, I mean, that's one of the things about the account of the resurrection. When you think about it, it's like, why didn't the soldiers just roll the stone back in place? Like, just roll the stone back in place and cover up that Jesus is no longer in the, or sorry, that he's still in the, cover up that he's no longer in the tomb. That would have been the best way to refute the claims of those disciples. That would have been the best way to refute the claims of those who claimed that he had been resurrected. Just reseal the tomb, roll the stone back, and maybe they would have except for the fact that that angel was sitting there on that stone. And Matthew tells us about his appearance. Look again at verse 3. He says this, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So this is intense, right? The countenance of this angel is like lightning. I wonder if when he descended from heaven, it was like a lightning strike on earth. You got to wonder his clothing white as snow, clothed in blinding glory, so it seems, bathed in unapproachable light. That's how he appeared to those who looked at him. And this guard of soldiers at the tomb trembled. The earth shook. The earth shook at the earthquake, but these men shook at the presence of the angel, and they fell to the ground like dead men. Uh, thinking, yeah, you know that line, nobody moves, nobody gets hurt? That originated at the tomb, I'm sure. <laughs> nobody moves, nobody gets hurt. The angel, okay? And it's just, just like, you know, these men were instructed to play dead, like, you know, in front of a bear, play possum, whatever it is. These men, though, were battle-hardened, elite veteran soldiers who knew how to squash an uprising. They dealt with all sorts of stuff in Jerusalem. And they were in Jerusalem because of their talent. They were in Jerusalem because of their special set of skills for handling those who would resist the will of Rome. But in the presence of this angel, they're playing dead. And so you have to love the irony of how God works, right? You have to love that here are these soldiers imitating the possum and it's two women that the angel speaks to, words of comfort, do not be afraid. Verse 5 says this, And the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. Would you say this with me? Do not be afraid. Let's say it again. Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus. Man, do not be afraid. I know you seek Jesus. The angel's countenance was just as terrifying to the women as it was to the soldiers. But the angel turned to them, could see their sense of fear, and disarmed them with words of comfort saying, Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus. He said to them, he is not here, verse 6. For he is risen, as he said, come see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. I mean, these are just such simple words, right? He's not here. He's not here. He's risen. Makes me think about the angels announcing the birth of our Lord. His birth was announced to shepherds. Announced here at his resurrection to the women. 
He says, you came to see uh, the tomb. Well, come and see it. <laughs> There's nothing to see. I mean, it's, it's empty. I hate to disappoint you, but there is nothing in here. There is nothing to see. And I'm sure this angel had a smile on his face like you can only imagine, don't you? Don't you think? As he welcomed them, draw near. Look in the empty tomb. And notice what he said. He said, come and see and then go and tell. Go find those men. Go find those disciples and tell them the Lord is not here. He has risen from the dead. The first witnesses to the resurrection were these two faithful women. You know, the empty tomb, they came and announced that to the disciples. And though they failed to believe immediately, the empty tomb became the cornerstone to the preaching of the disciples' message. It's apostolic preaching to declare the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That there is salvation in Christ Jesus. That it's available to Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, rich or poor, small and great. Come and see the empty tomb. There is life and living hope in Christ Jesus. Paul would preach the resurrection to the crowd on Mars Hill or to King Agrippa. Peter preached the resurrection and its power in the power of the Holy Spirit and at Pentecost and 3,000 were saved. Paul said this in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. If you will declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. And so the angel's announcement is this, that there is light in darkness. There is hope for the hopeless. There is life from the dead for the dead. This is the essence of the gospel. There is hope. There is light. There is the promise of new life. There is the forgiveness of sin. There is eternal life, and it is all found in the person of Jesus because of his death and his resurrection. The bold preaching of the apostles as they proclaimed life in Christ through faith in his death and resurrection shook the world, right? I mean, we read that in the book of Acts that just as the earth shook on the day of the resurrection of Jesus, as the church went out and proclaimed the resurrection of Christ, the world was turned upside down. Remember that, Acts chapter 5? Oh, those men who have turned upside down the world have come here as well. The gospel shakes the world. By his grace, we're saved. That's what we're celebrating this morning. We were dead in our sins. The chains of sins shackled us. We were dead in sin, alone and helpless, condemned in darkness. But we have been raised with Christ, made alive, forever made righteous because of Christ Jesus. Amen. We're redeemed. We've been bought back. Bought back with the riches of his amazing grace and relentless love. With the blood of Christ, by his grace, we are saved. That's what the empty tomb declares. Come and see and go and tell. There are those who, you know, in their hardened hearts, in their place of unbelief, uh, who just refuse to believe in the declaration of the empty tomb. Like the enemies of Christ, they make up theories that are weak and 
on shaky ground to account for what happened with Jesus. And the sad reality is this. I would say this, that many people remain unbelievers, not because they cannot believe, but because they will not. I mean, if it just comes down to facts, the facts are all pointing to belief. The proof of the resurrection is overwhelming. And nowhere was that more evident than with the religious leaders. These men just refused to believe in spite of the facts. So check out what chapter 7 continues to go on. It says this. Here's Matthew again. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So the angel commanded these two ladies, go and tell, come and see, go and tell that Jesus is risen from the dead, that he will go to Galilee before you as he had promised. Of course, Galilee is where Jesus spent the bulk of his time. It's where it all began for those who followed Jesus. That's where Jesus grew up. Galilee is where the disciples met him. It's where he did most of his miracles and where the greatest messages that he preached were taught. Jesus said, I will meet them in Galilee. Or the angel said, Jesus will meet you in Galilee. Now the disciples, they're, they're a mess, right? We know this from the accounts of the Gospels. One of the 12 was dead by this point in time. Judas had taken his life. Peter was still overcome by his own denial and betrayal of Jesus. They were men confused and afraid. But Jesus was going to forge these men into the nucleus of something new, the church that was about to be born, which was going to turn the world upside down. And so here's these ladies, half shocked, I imagine half rejoicing. They rushed off to share what they had seen and heard, probably still battling thoughts of fear, probably still completely overwhelmed with joy and wondering what was going on when the Lord appeared to them. They met King Jesus himself, the risen Lord. Again, look at verse 9. Matthew's got to say it again. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Jesus meets them. Isn't it beautiful? And uh, you know, our English translation is super weak here. When it just says greetings, it's way more than that in the original language. It, it means this, rejoice. It's more like that. Rejoice. That's what Jesus said. Can you imagine? Rejoice. Rejoice. Overwhelmed with joy instantaneously, they recognize the Lord Jesus. They bow before him. They see his nail-scarred feet, and they take hold of those feet with their hands and they get down on their knees and they worship those beautiful nail-scarred feet. They worship the Lord. They felt the reality of that resurrected body and they worshiped him. And that's what an encounter will do, an encounter with the resurrected Lord. That's what it'll do for you. It'll lead you to worship. It'll lead you to worship him. The words of the angels, of the angel was true. Their ears had not deceived them. Their eyes saw the empty tomb and they were not misled by their eyes and now their hearts knew the resurrection was gloriously and wonderfully true. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Don't 
be afraid. I love this about the resurrection of Jesus, that the resurrection of Jesus is the answer for human fear. To take comfort and hope in the living Lord. And Jesus said to these ladies, go tell the disciples. Actually, he says, go tell my brothers. This is the first time that Jesus ever called the disciples his brothers. It was after his resurrection from the dead. Tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. So with their fears dispelled, they went to tell the disciples all that they had seen and heard. Now verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So a few of these soldiers get away from the angel and their fears were not dispelled from the tomb into the city. They went to the chief priests and they reported all that had taken place. He said, you won't believe what happened. The angel came down from heaven. The stone was rolled back. The earth shook. Uh, the angel sat back on the stone. I mean, I just laid there like a dead man playing possum the whole time. And I imagine the elders, you know, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law descended into a state of confusion because they said this. They assembled all of the leaders. Look at verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes out, comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So here's their solution. Let's cover it up. Bribe, some money exchanges for a cover-up. Uh, you know, we want you to say, the soldiers are told, we want you to say that you were sleeping that the disciples came by night and stole the body. Now, this is like, this is so ridiculous. I mean, if this is evidence for refuting the resurrection of Jesus and this is the best you got, I mean, this is incredibly weak. I mean, first of all, if they were sleeping, how would they know that it was the disciples who took the body? I mean, besides this, these were soldiers. These were, these were men commissioned by Rome for a soldier to fall asleep in this situation while he was on duty, was a capital offense. He paid with his life. That's why the Pharisees had to say, we'll, cut, we'll smooth this over with the governor on your behalf. So if this story was true, that the disciples came by night and stole the body of Jesus, the soldiers would have been the very first ones to deny this reality. Here's something else to consider. If the disciples stole the body... Why didn't the Sanhedrin or the Roman governor arrest the disciples? Why didn't, he, why didn't they produce the body? Convict them of tampering with the governor's seal that was on the tomb for grave robbing. Any of those moves would have put a quick end to the report of his resurrection. But the best they could do was a buy-off, a payout. The best they could do was their propaganda campaign. You know, Just repeat the lie often enough and people will believe it. But, they, but, they, but what they concocted cannot stand up to just a few questions, right? I mean, we, just a few questions, and you're like, that story does not stand up because Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead. It cannot be denied. So verse 15, so they took money, and they did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. In fact, this story continues to be spread, isn't it? It's like, I, I think there's lots of places where this is taught, you, you know, parroted that old lie oh the disciples stole the body it's ridiculous 
It's ridiculous. I mean, think of the 12 themselves. The, the, the apostles, or the 11 surviving apostles and the apostle Paul. For the name of Jesus and the preaching of the cross and the resurrection, Peter was crucified upside down. His brother Andrew was crucified. Paul was beheaded. The other nine, except for John, were all martyred for their faith in Jesus. It's like historical truth. Thomas had his brains beat out with a club. James was killed with a sword. Philip was crucified. Matthew was stabbed to death. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned. Bartholomew was beheaded. Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot were both crucified. These men died violent deaths. Some of them saw their families tortured um, and, and killed because they continued to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These things were facts and truths and they believed them and preached them and built their lives upon them. You know, I have to tell you this. Uh, I don't have enough faith to believe that the 11 plus Paul suffered the way that they did for a lie. Do you? John may have been the only one not, uh, John was the only one to die of old age and you know what happened to him? <laughs> he was still boiled in oil and survived. If the resurrection was a lie, these guys would have cracked. That's why with utter confidence, uh, we can say with those uh, who have believed this for the millennia, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is risen. Tell me why the 11, why 11 of the 12 closest men to Jesus, plus the apostle Paul, died over their conviction for the preaching of the risen Jesus Christ. I'll tell you something about your relationship with Jesus. Your relationship with Jesus is is based on faith, but it is not blind. You may not know that yet. Maybe you're new in Christ or new to serving the Lord. It is based on faith, but it is not blind faith. I never have had to turn my mind off to follow Jesus. Amen? The evidence is all there. And the resurrection verifies, it substantiates, it, it confirms, it supports, it proves the claims of Jesus and all that he said. Now, verse 16 says this. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. I, I, I love this. Again, it's the same response as the women. As when they saw Jesus, their response to the resurrected Lord was to worship. This seems to me like it's probably what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15 when he speaks about all of the different groups of people uh, that, that, Jesus, that Jesus appeared to, including a group of 500 in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, after he'd been raised from the dead. They worshiped, and it's amazing that, that there was doubt. But we get that because we have hearts like that too, don't we? Doubting hearts. That happens here. Sunday comes along and sometimes you just deal with your own doubts, your own insecurities. And then you experience the presence of Jesus. Then you're reminded of the risen Lord. And that doubt just begins to melt away. And it begins to just melt away and you worship. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what we're celebrating today. 
What does it mean? What does it all mean, this resurrection? Well, the resurrection of Jesus substantiates every claim that Jesus ever made. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the demonstration of his power over sin and over death. It is proof that he alone can remove the barrier between man and God and that Jesus can bring us to the Father. It is proof, the resurrection is proof that Jesus Christ is God. The resurrection is the evidence, evidence that on the cross a divine transaction happened where Jesus rescued and redeemed you from sin's power and sin's punishment. The resurrection proves the claims of Christ. In him is life, and that life is the light of man, as the word of God says. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has removed the barrier. And we, his creation, come to him in repentance of sin and faith in the blood of Christ to cleanse us from our sin. And we give him our praise because we were enemies of God and now Jesus Christ, like he did for those 12, does to you and I. He says, you're my brothers and sisters. Those reconciled to God. Praise his name.